Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Romans chapter 4, we've got a task this morning. We're going to try to tackle an entire chapter. I know that seems impossible, but we're going to try it. Chapter 4 of Romans. We spent four weeks in chapter 1. We spent two weeks in chapter 2 and two weeks in chapter 3. And now we're going to try to do one week in chapter 4. So uh, as you're going there, we're going to see the promise of faith. And uh, as Paul is making his plea, uh, he is making his plea now with a a case study. He's going to call a character witness, you know, to the stand. He's going to have uh, Abraham that he's going to point out as the father of faith and how he had faith in the promise that was given him. So we all make promises. Even when you're a kid, you make a promise. And sometimes you might be familiar with this, kids. I pinky promise. Any of the kids ever do a pinky promise? Make your parents pinky promise. We're going to have pizza for dinner. Pinky promise, right? You're, we're going to have ice cream. Pinky promise, right? Oh, I saw some excitement there. Okay, so, uh, sorry I got you in trouble there, parents. But, maybe you said this, I crossed my heart and hope to die. You're like, that sounds awkward now that I'm an adult, right? That sounds awful. Maybe you uh, took a serious promise. Maybe you stood at the, um, I would say, altar and made this promise, but now everyone stands outside in the field when they get married or at a barn. So uh, maybe you said to have and to hold this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Maybe that was a promise that was made. We make promises, and a promise, as we know, is to say for sure that you will definitely do something in the future. You're going to hold to this. And so as we think about promises, we've all made promises and come up short. We've broken promises, but we have a God who is faithful and true, who cannot lie, who makes a promise. And when he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And that is the beauty of the promise that we have in Christ Jesus. And so when we put our faith in the promise of Christ Jesus and his resurrection power, we can count on it. And so we have this whole chapter to walk, up, to walk through what it looks like to have faith. So our faith is in a person and in a promise and not in our practice or our piety. And what happens is, is sometimes we begin to put our faith as the thing that's holding us together. Well, it's my faith, it's my faith, it's my faith. And we've taken our focus off of the person and we've started to look at our piety. And when our piety fails and when our practice fails, we then waver in our faith. And so, as the, uh, the evangelism explosion questions would ask us, and I'm going to ask these questions to you. They're not meant to be trick questions, but they help you see where you are in faith. They say this, number one, do you know for sure that you are going to be with God in heaven? That's the first one. That's a, that's a great question. And I would, I would tell you, hey, right now, ask yourself this question. Do you know for sure? Because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the next breath. We don't know how long life will be. But when that day comes, do you know for sure? Here's the second one. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? So you get there, and he says, all right, so why should I let you in? What would be your answer at that point? And so this is where it gets tricky, because when you ask this question, you're not trying to trick people, but all of a sudden they feel like you're trying to trick them. And they're like, okay, well, what is the answer? What should I say? And so you hear all kinds of things. You hear stuff like, I prayed a prayer, and I was baptized. Okay, that's good. That's good. Or they say, I believe in God, and I try to be a good person. I try to follow the Lord's commandments. Or maybe they'll go a step further and say, you know what? I believe in Jesus with all of my heart. And so all of these answers are ones that you would hear, but all of these answers actually put your focus on faith and works rather than on Christ. Did you hear all of these, I did this, I did this, I did this? So if you say, I prayed a prayer and I was baptized, that's salvation by works. Look at what I did. 
I had to do something in order to be accepted, and so I did it, and now God accepts me. Well, that's not what Scripture says. I believe in God, and I try to be a good person and follow all the commandments. Well, that's salvation by faith and works, so that I did this, I believe this, and now I've contributed to it, and so look at my, look at my record. Look, I'm doing pretty good. So that would be wrong as well. And then you get to the one which says, I believe in Jesus with all my heart, which sounds really good, but then that is what we talked about last week, is making faith a work rather than an instrument. Look at what my faith is doing. Look at how well I'm believing. Look at how well I'm loving God with all of my heart. And so as Keller said last week, I'll quote it again this week, if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and start looking at your faith. What has happened? You've turned your faith into a work. Faith is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. If you don't see this, you will think you have something to boast about. The reason I am saved is because I put my faith in Jesus. This is a subtle misunderstanding which cuts away our assurance and boosts our pride. It's very subtle because we say these things with the best intentions, but then we begin to focus on what we have brought to the table. This is why Paul, as we're going to get to, he even addresses this issue of Abraham in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, 20 through 3, 9, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear that? I live by faith in the Son of God. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not nullifying the, any of this because I believe that it is, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by works. It's not what I've done. And then he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did your good works cause you to receive the Spirit, or was it by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Knowing that you are saved by faith, are you now perfecting your faith because of how good you are? He's like, who, who, who bewitched you with this? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, and now we're getting into it, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This idea of faith. Faith is the instrument by God, of God by which sinners receive justification and transformation. It is by faith. And so as we get into chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul is telling us what faith is, and he's describing it to a bunch of religious people, the Jews. And so he's saying this is faith. So if you're ready, Romans chapter 4, we got a lot of reading to do. So follow along in your Bibles with me. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted 
to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those who have, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, count, will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that, had been, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for faith. We thank you for the instrument that draws us, that brings us into a right relationship with you. Father, as we walk through your holy scriptures today that are divinely inspired by your Holy Spirit, I pray that your Holy Spirit would implant them in our hearts and in our minds and that you would bring understanding. Father, I pray right now for our students who are at youth camp. I pray, Lord, that as seeds of faith are sown into their life this week, Lord, that you would begin to produce in them a life full of faithfulness and godliness, that you would bring them from death to life. Father, today we love you, and we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing I'd like to see is through faith, we have the promise of forgiveness. We're going to look at three, three things we have because of the promise. So through faith, we have the promise of forgiveness. As we see verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, 
our forefather, according to the flesh. Now, Paul is writing to a Jewish audience with this thought, and he says, listen, we understand that as Jews, our forefather, according to the flesh, was Abraham. What this means was that Abraham had many sons, and many sons did father Abraham. Y'all follow me? Okay, so some of you got that. So what, is, what happens is all the Jews can then trace back the lineage, their, their lineage by the flesh all the way back to Abraham. They know that because of this promise that was made, that he would create this people, and so they are, they are fully convinced that this is us. We are the descendants of Abraham because of the lineage that has happened, because of the 12 tribes and all of that. So go all the way back to Genesis 15, 1 through 6, where this verse is going to be quoted. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have, been given, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram said, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We go all the way back to this Genesis 15, where they're claiming that all of the offspring are going to come from Abraham. And what is happening is, is that they're saying, well, this is because of the flesh. And what Paul is now beginning to argue is, no, it's not because of flesh, it's because of faith. Even Jesus, when he is confronted by the religious leaders, they are arguing that they are the descendants of Abraham in John 8, 39 through 42. And they answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would, have, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is interesting of what takes place here where they are claiming to be the children of Abraham and Jesus is in fact saying you're not the children of Abraham because you are not acting as children of faith you in fact want want to kill me and so he's talking to these religious leaders who are by no means listening to the word of God they're not listening to the son of God and they don't want anything to do with the son of God and so he's saying listen you're you're not really children of Abraham you're actually children of the devil because you're you're acting like him not like a child of Abraham What's more interesting is that they even accuse Jesus of being illegitimately born, meaning that they're going against the virgin birth in this statement, that they're not buying into the fact that Mary was a virgin. And so they're accusing him of being this child out of wedlock. The root problem here was, not that, it was that they were not willing to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They were not willing to believe the promise of God, and therefore it made them not the descendants of Abraham, descendants by faith. So verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is arguing that faith, that if faith equals obedience, then Abraham would have something to boast about. 
if faith equals obedience or obedience leads to faith, then, then he would have something to boast about. Scripture does not read that Abraham obeyed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not how it reads. It says that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. How, however, religious-minded thoughts gets that backwards. And we think, well, as long as I will do these things, it will be credited to me as righteousness. As long as I obey the right things, act the right way, I will be in good standing. So let's go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 4, the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go to your country and to your kindred, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessed, be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. So Abram was called, he was blessed, and then he obeyed. Did you see the, the step process there? He was called, he was blessed, then he obeyed. He didn't obey first, which caused him to be blessed. He follows in obedience after he is called and he has blessed, he has promised four and five now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness so what does this mean does not work well it can't mean that christians don't do good works because they do good works they were planned beforehand what it means is that they have ceased to do works as a means to salvation. Those who do not work, they have ceased to put forth their good works as a means to receive salvation. When it comes to establishing your rightness with God instead of working for it and expecting it to be given to you as your due, you are believing and it is declared to you as a gift. There's a huge difference. So when you believe, when you put your faith in Christ and the promise that God accomplished what God said he accomplished on the cross through Jesus Christ, that when he sent Jesus to die in your place, that he was paying your sin debt in full, when you believe that and accept it as yours, his righteousness is credited to you. This is faith. Credited. The word here in the ESV is counted. It's a banking term. It's an accountant term. It means that it was put into your account. It's the word here means that you were in debt, and then all of a sudden you were credited with a whole bunch in your, in your checking account. So some of you, this will speak to you more, more personally than others, right? I remember being early on, young married. I didn't tell my wife we were gonna, I was going to say this, but I remember we, we were really good at balancing the checkbook when we were younger. That's sarcasm, okay? So what that meant was is that we would sometimes write checks and we'd have to really watch our checking account because there were certain things you couldn't pay for until certain times in the, in the, in the month and you were like, okay, I think I paid this. Did you pay this? No, I didn't pay this. We can't pay this. And if you don't know what a checkbook is, let's, let's just go at it a different way. Maybe it would be that your card's not working or your phone when you try to swipe it is not working, right? So these are the things that are, that are happening because there's no money in your account. And here's, here's what he's saying. At some point, you can't earn enough credit to pay for it. You'll never have enough in your account. But through faith, it's a, it's a righteousness that is credited to your account. All of a sudden, you're not in debt anymore, but you're in the positive. You have, you have moved from debt to positive, and it's a, it's a righteousness that has been credited to you, not by works, but by faith. 
This is not the faith results in righteousness or that Abraham's faith was in itself a form of righteousness, but that through faith God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life. An outside righteousness had been credited to his life, not that it was his own. As Douglas Moose says, the reckoning or the crediting of Abram's faith as righteousness means to account him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. This is beautiful. This means that you, you are not good enough. You cannot be good enough. You cannot follow enough rules. You cannot come up with a righteousness of your own that can save you. You are completely in debt, but then through Christ and faith in Christ and his finished work in your place, that righteousness has been credited to your account. It's a righteousness that is outside of your own. That is good news. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is possible for you to be loved and accepted by God while also being sinful and imperfect. That's good news. Because a lot of us believe that God can't love me because of what I've done. God must be so ashamed of me because of what I've done. But what this means, and we, we said this last week, it was Martin Luther's Simul Justice et Precator, simultaneously just, declared just, and sinner. That means that even though you have sin in your life, he has credited that righteousness to you, and he can love you and accept you even though you struggle with sin right now. I would have you raise your hand, but I'm not going to do it. But if I asked you, anyone in here struggle with sin, I would guarantee you there would be 100% participation of those of you who are paying attention, right? <laughs> that would be what would happen. So by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it is possible for you to be loved and accepted by God while also being sinful and imperfect. So faith is not an acknowledgement of Jesus and his work. It is an assurance of Jesus and his work. It is not the acknowledgement of Jesus and his work. It's the assurance. As Hebrews would say in 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's an assurance there. As we talk about Abraham, there was an assurance he had in the promise that God was making for him. Even though it didn't look very good on his part because, as Scripture says, he was almost dead being 100 years old. It didn't look very good, but he held to the promise. There was an assurance that he had. It's like the illustration of sitting in a chair. You, you've seen this illustration where there's a chair. I don't have a chair up here, but if there was a chair up here, I could say, you know what? I believe. I acknowledge that this chair will hold me up. I am certain that it will hold me up. I, I have told other people about this chair and how well this chair can hold people up. I, I have all of this confidence in this chair, and I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent for the chair. But have I ever sat in the chair? Have I ever rested in the chair? Have I ever put my entire weight in the chair? That's faith. I put my weight in the promise that he will hold me because I am sinful. That's beautiful. And a lot of us have acknowledged Jesus. A lot of us have acknowledged the fact that he can save. We've acknowledged the fact that he can hold us, that he can forgive us, that he can do all of these things. But acknowledging him is not the same as having assurance in him. So we must have assurance. As Timothy Keller says, saving faith is not believing that God is there. Further, it's not believing in a God who saves is believing God when he promises a way of salvation by grace 
You can have lots and lots of strong faith that God exists, that he is loving, that he is holy. You can believe that the Bible is God's holy word. You can show great reverence for God, yet all the while, you could be seeking to be your own savior and justifier by trusting in your own performance in religion, in moral character, etc. A lot of us have a lot of confidence in ourselves. And Paul would say, that would nullify grace. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 4, 6 through 8, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He brings another character to the stage and he says, well, look at David. David, as he quotes Psalm 32, David had sinned grievously. Now, David had a lot to boast in. He had a lot to, to be proud of. He was a chosen son of Jesse. He was anointed king over Israel. He was a man after God's own heart, but he had also sinned grievously. He had committed adultery, and he had been an accomplice to murder. And as he says this, he's saying, listen, I know that there's a righteousness that is not based on how good I am. There's a righteousness that's outside of me. And he even brings David into this, because David is declaring that those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, have their sins wiped clear. Their record is erased. They're no longer in debt, but they have had a, right, a righteousness credited to their account. So though we are sinners, and though we sin, those sins, if you are in Christ, are not condemning you, and they're not changing God's status when he looks at you, because you are covered in Christ. What a blessing of that promise that we are forgiven. The second one is through faith we have the promise of adoption. The promise of adoption, let's look at 9 through 12. And this blessing then, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted <clears throat> to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? <clears throat> it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to, to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's very confusing when you read it just like that. But what he's saying is, look at Genesis chapter 12. He was called, and he was given a promise. 15, there was a covenant that was made. There was a covenant that was cut that established the promise. And then in 17, there's the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Genesis 17, 9 through 10 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So here's Paul's question. This is the question he's posing. Was Abraham credited righteousness before or after the work of circumcision? And then he answers it. It was before. Even as you read through Genesis, you can tell that, hey, he was credited a righteousness before he ever did anything. 
before there was the seal, before there was a circumcision. So here's his logic. If Abraham was saved by faith without circumcision or works, then uncircumcised non-Jewish people will also be saved the same way, without circumcision and without works. It's by faith. This was the argument that popped up in the early church in Acts 15 when they had the Jerusalem Council. As Paul and Silas were making their way, there was this argument as all these Gentiles were coming into the church, well, there's something we need to tell them that they must do to be saved. And so this argument came up, well, should we tell them to, to be circumcised? We, I think we should. This is how, this is the seal, this is the covenant. And so this is how it reads in Acts 15, 4 through 11. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they were. It is not by works that you are saved, so that no one may boast. He uses Abraham as a case study. When did he receive the righteousness? Before the circumcision. It's not because he did anything. So, if by keeping the law or by doing the right thing is what gains you access into the family of God, then none of us will be allowed in. Isn't that remarkable? As you look around as the church gathers, if it's a matter of keeping the law, if it's a matter of being perfect, if it's a matter of being pious and having a right practice, if it's a matter of doing the right thing, then none of us are allowed in. But here's the good news. You've been adopted by faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. It is an adoption through faith. You have been brought into the family of God. He has sons and sons and daughters in nations and nations and nations all over the world. He's bringing into himself a people of faith. But if we're not careful, we will associate in the family of God as a religious clique with people who look like we do, talk like we do, dress like we do, think like we do, don't do what we do or don't do. And then we will alienate people from the family of God and righteous converts. If we ever elevate obedience to the law over faith in the promise, then we make faith null and the promise void. The sign of obedience comes from a source of faith, not the other way around. Verses 13 through 15, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
We are now adopted into the family of faith, not by works, not by the law, but by faith. And that's why Paul would say in Galatians 4, 3 through 5, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are a people of faith. Abraham had faith, but it was not in himself. Abraham had faith, but it didn't waver because of his feelings. Abraham had faith not in the appearances of things that were going on in his life. Abraham had faith in a promise. In a promise. And so Hebrews 11, 11 through 12 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. We are adopted in. We are part of a family. We are grafted in, and we were, we we're brought in out of nothing. Just as the promise to Abraham came out of nothing, we were brought in out of nothing, except for the blood of Jesus Christ, the promised son. As Tony Marita put it, God not only literally created the world out of nothing, he also figuratively gave Abraham and Sarah a child out of nothing. He formed a people out of nothing, and he continues to bring spiritual life out of nothing. We believers belong to this people. So there's another promise. The third promise is this. Through faith, we have the promise of new life. Verses 22 through 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We have seen that we are forgiven, that our debt has been credited a righteousness that is outside of our own. We have seen that we are a people who are adopted by faith into a, into a people. We see that Abraham had faith in the promise of a son, and now we have faith fixed on the promise of his son. So Abraham's life shows us what faith looks like. Abraham, when you read his account, was far from perfect. Do you remember the account? Do you remember that he lied about who his wife was? Do you remember that he tried to take things into his own hands and he slept with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar? Do you remember how he kept messing up along the way? Abraham did not always live out his faith perfectly. His obedience was not perfect. His trust had highs and lows, but his faith was never extinguished. I would venture to say that that would be the case for our faith story, am I right? That though there's highs and lows to your faith, though you may limp in here on a Sunday knowing that you've had a really rough week and things did not go the way you had planned, your faith is not gone. In fact, it's even more reason for you to put all of your weight into Christ because I can't do it. This was the story of Abraham. We too have a faith in the hope of God's Son. 
That doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that, persevere, that perseverance happens in our life. That we continue to persevere in the faith. Faith is in the promise of Jesus. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And that defines the course of our life. Faith changes us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 17-20 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A faith that saves you is a faith that changes you. As the old reformers would say, justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. It always produces a change. The point is that if we have true faith, it will immediately and necessarily be manifested in a changed life. If no change follows from your profession, your profession of faith, all we have is a profession of faith. We do not possess the real thing because real faith always issues in some degree of obedience. Works flow necessarily from faith, but the point of the gospel is that works is that the works that flow from faith are in no way the grounds for justification. God declares us just in his sight the moment true faith is present before a single work flows from our faith. It is all about faith. Let me ask you, is your life in Christ? Have you come to a point where your faith is more than an acknowledgement that Jesus saves? You've placed your entire life in the promise that Jesus saves through the resurrection is your life on a new course? Has there been a decisive change in the way that your life has lived since you made that profession of faith? Are you an ambassador pleading others to come to the reconciliation? It's by faith alone that we are saved, that we are credited for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the instrument of faith. We thank you, Lord, that you sustain us, that you hold us, and you keep us, that you are the author and that you're the perfecter of faith, and that you who began a good work in us, you will see it to completion. Father, right now, I pray that if there's some who have not put their full faith in you, that they would do so today, that they would come to a point realizing that they are in debt and they need to be reconciled with you, that they would throw themselves before you and say, it's by you and you alone and not my works. Father, draw your children to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?